This is your host, Diana Latimer-Hearn. Happy Hispanic Heritage Month. In this episode, I had the pleasure of discussing parent and community engagement with Ms. Susana Barrios, a community advocate from Baltimore, Maryland. From the flavorful foods we eat to the rhythm of the beats we keep, our hair and clothes define what it means to be sheep. For centuries, onlookers have been captivated by our mystique and every aspect of our being that makes us unique. This is the culture we speak. Ms. Susana Barrios is a self-described learner of life and an agent of change who currently serves as an outreach coordinator for Disability Rights Maryland. Disability Rights Maryland is a protection and advocacy agency. Mrs. Barrios is an active volunteer for a number of organizations where she advocates for parent involvement and empowerment. We just recently had the pleasure of meeting during a panel discussion on linguistic diversity that was hosted by Cricket Media, and so I'm very thankful to have you here today. Thank you, and welcome to The Culture We Speak. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I think we had a wonderful conversation, and I'll definitely link the conversation that we had on the panel so that others can access that as well. But I wanted to kind of dive in and get to know a little bit more about your background. Just the little bit that I heard during the panel discussion really intrigued me. So can you share a little bit about your background and your cultural linguistic identity? Yes, so I came to the United States from Guatemala in 1981. We came with my brothers. When we came to Baltimore City, there was one school that had ESOL program, and you had to get special permission to get to that school. So we had to go through a whole bunch of things, and we got into it. It was only five of us. It was two students from Nepal and my two brothers and myself. It was not easy, but... I do have to thank the way they did it. We went to school here and saw a lot of injustices that happened with my brother. For example, my brother, he had dyslexia and they didn't really do anything. So he would skip school. And instead of helping him, they had a court hearing for my brother and he was expelled from school in seventh grade. At that time, they gave my father the files and I read the files. I mean, they gave him everything. And I read the notes from the teachers where the teachers said that they suspected dyslexia, but the school never did anything about it and I was able to read all the files I promised myself that I would help as many people as I could because of the lack of language you know because my parents were really really involved but unfortunately they didn't speak the language so they didn't understand what rights they had to do anything so fast forward my children went to school and what I could do was help other parents that didn't speak English they started inviting me to a lot of trainings in the school system and it just took off from there so then special education I noticed was something that was big and I just started diving in there and because I volunteer a lot that's how come the people at Disability Rights Maryland got to know me and I ended up working there, which I am now part of a bigger program where we can have a bigger impact. I am grateful for that opportunity, but I continue to fight to make sure that the best weapon that anybody has is knowing what their rights are and what they have a right to. So a lot of the times the school systems also don't know because the districts have not informed them what they must do. So by me sharing information with whomever I can about what they can be doing, then, you know, it can improve the students' quality of their life. Well, that's beautiful. And I appreciate you for being transparent about that. It's a very challenging experience to have to walk through, particularly with a sibling who's having educational challenges and not having those challenges supported in any way. And I can definitely relate to that. I have a younger brother who also was ushered out of the educational setting in a similar way. And I wonder, to what degree does that influence the work that I do today? So maybe in a similar manner to what you're doing, we're both out here advocating and trying to change the way that things work for people who are maybe not quite interested 
entering into school and accessing the resources that are there. Again, thank you for sharing that. So you mentioned coming to the U.S. from Guatemala and how challenging that was coming into this new situation, the limited resources that were there in terms of ESOL support. And I'm thankful that you were able to get into the program and get to the resources that you needed. But I'm wondering, how did your identity sort of shift as you moved from Guatemala to the U.S. and sort of moved from maybe majority culture into being part of a minoritized group in this country? So again, I think that my experience was so much different than a lot of people that have come recently in the recent years, because when we came, there was very little in Baltimore City that had, you know, anything that had to do with immigrants in general. It was very little. So we had to assimilate. So, you know, we had to change a lot of our traditions, although we tried to incorporate them. There was really nobody that explained to us what some of the traditions were. So we kind of like made our traditions and meshed them up with American traditions, like Thanksgiving. We don't necessarily cook turkey. We cook food that we would usually cook for celebrating. Things like that. People that I see that are coming in the past years, they do more cultural things. Our family didn't really do that as much. We were trying to assimilate. When I came in the 80s, people wouldn't speak Spanish. If they had little children, they would only speak to them in English. They would be like, no, no, no. So then they wouldn't even speak children in Spanish. Now it's just like, you know, it's a resource to have somebody speaking Spanish. If you work as a nanny, for example, they would be like, don't speak to my child in Spanish. Now they're like, please teach my child Spanish. Yeah. You know, so it was so different. And so my children, our mindset is more American. And I also see myself that I change when I am in a group of Hispanics that were, you know, people only speak Spanish. I feel myself, it's a different kind of how I carry myself and, you know, or when I go to Guatemala. My children have been accused a lot of, oh, you act like a white person or you talk like a white girl. And it's not that they talk any which way. And it's just that they speak how they have learned. <laughs> right? yes. They don't have an accent. I think that people don't hear that in my children so they get accused of wanting to be white and I can understand how that would be the perception of some you know it was not yeah. intentional sometimes I feel like my children have lost a lot of their cultural traditions because we don't necessarily practice those cultural traditions where other children that are their age their families do. maybe they had more of a community where they were able to but you weren't given yeah. the opportunity in the same way so they had idea. more of that but it was me so I really do take responsibility for that part well I think it's the experience that you have that you were giving them exactly what you had access to. So whatever your cultural capital is, whatever your linguistic capital, the things that you have at your disposal are the only things you can hand to your children. Yeah. So for me, I speak mainstream English and I also speak African-American English. Well, my children do the same thing because that's all I can hand them. I can't hand them Mandarin. I can only mm -hmm. give them what I have. And so based on that experience, which obviously was, had some erasure in it, some cultural erasure that you went through, based on what you were able to sort of preserve, that's what you shared. And if that's sort of the way that that's interpreted, and how they communicate, I don't think that's quote unquote your fault. I think that that's the situation that unfolded, unfortunately. That's frustrating. I struggle with this idea of having students leave their language outside of school. You need to bring your whole entire self in. And even as you mentioned that you behave differently when you're engaging with mm -hmm. other Hispanic people, that I would imagine probably feels freeing and authentic. And I can imagine that it does. I don't want yeah. to yeah. Yeah, no, it's like, because sometimes you're like, oh, because it's different, right? So if you act, it's just different, but you kind of adjust to your environment. Yeah, I don't want to deny anyone of that. You know, like yeah. I want people to have that. So, I mean, as the years have gone by, I see a lot of that changing. Again, this is back in the 80s. And, you know, like I said, a, a lot of it has changed. People see it as a gift. Oh, you know, you, you're different. That's okay. You add spice to our group, you know, so uh, times have yeah. changed, which is great. So 
So how did you sort of encourage your children to celebrate their identity? I make sure, one, we always go back to Guatemala and I make sure that they have interactions with their family, with my family, his family, because both their dad and me were both from Guatemala. When they were younger, they would be like, oh, you always make us visit family. And, you know, uh, uh, uh. but as they got older, they realized what a wonderful gift it is, right? So they will brag and they're like, oh, you don't understand. It's like a small party for us where only families invited is over 200 people. Now they see that or, you know, oh, we've climbed volcanoes because when they hear it, somebody talking about, oh, this faraway place and they're like, oh, I've been there. So I think that at first they didn't quite understand, but as time goes by and they hear how others admire those things, they embrace it more and more. But, you know, like I said, my parents only speak Spanish and they come here often. They have really strong roots in Guatemala. That's how we have encouraged it. And then when they were in elementary school, we lived in a very diverse, and I did that on purpose, in a very diverse neighborhood. And that also, I didn't realize the strong roots that we were able to plant because when they went to middle school and high school, my daughter has always had a crayon box of friends, right? But she also understands the cultural differences. So while other judge certain behaviors, she doesn't. She understands, oh, she talks like this because this is normal, you know? She has a way bigger understanding than I could ever have. But I think having lived in a diverse neighborhood, it was definitely a, the greatest gift I could have ever given my children. Because, same same yeah. thing. I do the same <laughs> thing because I think that if we look at, you know, historical practices in housing and all sorts of redlining, et cetera, we know there's a lot of racism and a lot of segregation that has created these sort of enclaves and communities where only one group might live in that community. And so being able to find a community where you have exposure to multiple cultures, languages. For me, it's priceless. And I do the same thing for my children yeah. as well. It's not that you don't see color. It's that you understand that I see you and you behave this way. And that's okay. You know, because that's who you are. And I see you and you behave this way. And that's okay. And I accept you. So that's how my children see it. Like, it's not yeah. that they are like, oh, because you're like this and you act this way. I don't want to have anything to do with you. They understand the difference. And again, I, I learn so much from my children every day. It really, with my youngest one, she's in her sophomore year in college. But last year, it was very helpful. Again, that background knowledge was very yeah. helpful going to college because she had not had a shelter life. She was like, oh, only people like me or only people. So, you know, again, I think that was the greatest gift I could give them. The exposure traveling is definitely like the best teacher, in my opinion. I love traveling. Mm -hmm. I think it's the best way to learn about yourself and also to learn about the world around you and definitely to pick up on this, what seems like maybe an outlandish idea here in the U.S., but the idea that this isn't it. Like I get frustrated when I hear people who have not left the country to see anything else, just sit there and say how wonderful the U.S. is or how wonderful our way of doing things is. I think it's great, but it's just one way. And there are so many other ways of doing things, so many other ways of existing, of being. And if we don't consider that and include that in our journey in life, then we're really failing ourselves. So yeah, I've used that for my children as well. Diverse schools, diverse neighborhoods as much as possible, because I don't want them to have the mindset that they can only be or experience life in one way. I call myself a traveler, not a tourist. We try not to do, but sometimes we do resorts, but you know, we try to do, and I do a lot of, so a lot of like 
travel in in there, right? I like to rent a car. But I think when you do that, and then you go see how people live, then you realize, yes, we have fancy stuff and, you know, we have a very easy life. And of course, that's there's nothing wrong. I mean, I like to go glamping too, right? But and you see how creativity can create things because they don't have the resources that we have. It helps you see that, okay, you don't have it, but that just because you don't have those resources doesn't mean that, you know, you cannot find other resources and yeah. make something out of that. And so still have um, strengths to yeah. contribute to society at large. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. beautiful. The next question I have for you is what barriers have you faced in your personal and professional journey and how have you overcome those barriers? I think the biggest barriers is people underestimate me or have a tendency to put a label on me. They see me and they're like, oh, she doesn't know anything. So it's like, because I speak it with an accent, they might not know. And this started really, really early when we, we first came here, when we used to do math. Math is universal, right? So just because I didn't speak English, the teacher would do the things and I would like finish math really quickly, right? So they were like so surprised. And, you know, the knowledge was there. I just didn't know how to say it. So my background is a lot, I do a lot of boots on the ground, right? So I, I'm always listening and I'm always talking to people and asking them, well, what is it that you need? So a lot of people dismiss that, you know, and people come and they're like, this is what I'm going to do for you because I think this is what you need, right? And then I go and I say, no, this is what they need. And they don't necessarily listen to me. So that's one of the barriers I have encountered a lot. Yeah, I think that's the biggest barrier. I think if I am aware of it, then, you know, I use it to my advantage. A lot of organizations or trainings, they are grant funded, right? So if they're offering free trainings, but one of their requirements is that they serve a diverse population. So for mm -hmm. the longest time in Baltimore City, when my children were around, I was like pretty much the only active Hispanic parent. So I got accepted to everything. Sometimes I would be like, I don't even know why I'm accepted to this training. So I realized that I was, uh, I always said I'm the token Hispanic, right? Because they needed somebody. But guess what? I don't care. I took thousands of dollars worth of free trainings. Yes. I have been able to help so many people, which somebody could have seen as a, as a barrier. Somebody could have been ended by it. I was like, you have that. Uh, you have this option for me. Yeah. You have to give me this option. I'm going to take it. And I have multiplied it. into Yes. And that's beautiful to yeah. be able to, if you're granted access or if you have access to use that in order to support other people who may not have that same access or may not have the same, same ability to navigate spaces. Because I know during our panel discussion, even you talked about knowing your rights and making sure that you're aware of what's available to you. And since organizations don't always put that up front, then it's hard to do that. And so you going and being able to navigate spaces and then taking that back and supporting other people in that process, I think is beautiful. Yeah. So Baltimore City, though, I have to say has come a long way. They now have a lot of trainings and they're in Spanish. And, you know, Baltimore County has some way to go, but Baltimore City is making huge strides towards there. But yes, definitely, you know, I think the thing is, is they say nobody's interested. Nobody's interested, but it's not available in their language right so if there's interest they can, then they can get they can get funding for that yeah and that's great i'm all for free trainings too so i'm, <laughs> I'm with you there <laughs> <laughs> so what sparked your interest in working as an advocate for culturally and linguistically diverse populations again it goes back to what happened with my parents because in guatemala when we were there they were incredibly 
perspective involve parents. I know that a lot of the stereotypes are that Hispanic parents are not involved, but that is not the case. It's just that culturally, this also happens in many other cultures. We don't go because we don't want to interrupt. You're the teacher, so you have to ask us. So if you ask us, then we will go. My experience was that the teachers say, we need volunteers. So then the parents will be like, I don't speak English. I don't know that the teacher will want. So like I said, then people think that parents are not really involved, but that's not the case. Again, my parents were the little spark. But then when, once my children were in school, I would do that. I would be like somebody, they would need volunteers in the cafeteria. Come and be a volunteer in the cafeteria. They would be like, I I don't speak English. I'm like, you don't need to learn to speak English. This is what you need to do. I will tell you what you need to do. Somebody will tell you. And we had a huge volunteer force there. And parents were really involved. That's how I I got started. A lot of that is that mainstream perspective or mainstream gaze about what it is that other groups are doing. So it's if your volunteerism or your involvement or your parenting doesn't look like mainstream expectations of parenting, then it falls short in some way. Instead of being different, it's seen as deficient and it's looked at as, oh, well, this parent isn't invested or this parent isn't doing, you know, whatever. And it's really more the expression of that parent's interest and involvement is different than the expression that you're expecting. And it is okay that their involvement looks different. Let that be because, you know, I often compare it to, for instance, buying your parent a gift, for instance, Uh, if I buy my mom a gift for Mother's Day and you buy your mom a gift for Mother's Day, is yeah. one better than the other? It's just, I bought what my mom would want and you bought yeah. what your mom would want. It may look different. It doesn't mean that one of us loves our mom more. It just means that the way we expressed it is based on our own relationship. It's unique. And that's how we can express our love. It might not cost money at all. Just because it doesn't look like what someone else has described as the right way doesn't make it wrong, less than, uninvolved or any of that. And so we really have to move away from that in society. So one time I went to a panel discussion and then they had teachers separate and then they had the parents separate and then the students separate different tables so then they asked what does parent involvement look like to you so then the teacher said when the parents volunteer they field trips and they come to the parent teacher conference the parents said when we go and help the school like and they're like thinking in the cafeteria if the school needs us to paint the classrooms and when they asked the students they said well if my parents ask me, how was your day? What homework do you have? Have you done your homework? So that's exactly what you're saying. It means different things from to different people. The other exactly. thing is, is we have to meet them where they are because some parents have two jobs. Some parents are like the single parent. They have other children, right? Right. Yeah. So we just have to give them something so that they feel like they belong. Sometimes if a parent is super duper busy, then the teacher could just say, here, can you cut this apples at home? And yeah. then the parent's like, oh, I feel like something. It's giving them something so that they feel like they're part of, right? I yeah. think that brings in more than actually, I think it's quality versus quantity. Yeah. And I see that also on in, in the school front, not necessarily specific in that region, but just in general places I've worked, I've seen more you know, teachers say, well, the parents aren't involved because they don't show up for meetings. And I don't Mm. think we recognize that, for instance, for me, I have a car outside, I have my access to my car, I have access to my spouse's car. I, you know, could Uber, I have a lot of options on how to get places. I'm working in one place, I can take time off in the place that I work. I don't have to travel by bus, for instance, I don't have to try to figure out how to, to move from one space to another. I don't lose a shift 
if I take time off from work? You know, there's so many factors that we just skip right over and say, well, the parent just won't care. Well, maybe the parent doesn't work in a place where they have the ability to leave when they get ready. Maybe the person that, you know, doesn't have access to a vehicle. You know, there's so many other factors. And so when we get stuck on this mainstream gaze, if this is the way it has to be, this is the only way for you to demonstrate your involvement, then yeah. we really do harm to families instead of really supporting and facilitating best outcomes for the students, because we're really just in the end harming the students. So we used to do like a mix at the PTO again many years ago when my children were in elementary school was we first we did the PTO meeting on a Saturday morning and we had a great increase in the amount of people that came. But I also say you should always change the meeting times, you know, not always in the evening, sometimes during the day, you might have different people come, you know, it's just it doesn't have to be the same day at the same time, you know, or it could be the same day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, because not everybody has that flexibility, like you say. What has been the biggest challenge you've encountered in the work that you currently do? The biggest challenge that I encounter is that a lot of the times people don't trust me because I'm outreach and I'm out there selling the services that we have. And our services are free, but people don't trust that they really are for free or they don't. It's like, why are you being so nice kind of thing? Well, I work with the Hispanic community, immigrant community, and really in Baltimore City, the African-American community, they don't trust you just because. So I cannot just show up to a community meeting or to a resource fair and go and tell you. No, I have to keep coming and I have to show you that I am there to stay, right? And you're so invested in that community, yeah. I keep showing up and I keep showing up and I'm like, I'm here. And then if they need you, then, you know, you're answering their questions. And it takes time. The biggest barrier that I've had by now is building trust. So how I have been able to build trust incredibly is through social media. And what I do is, is I comment and I comment and comment. So people recognize my name and they're like, oh, you know, you're such and such. And we kind of recognize your name from Facebook. But that's what I had to do, you know, when nobody could go anywhere, you know. So I think that building trust is the biggest barrier. That translates directly to school as well. I see a lot of people enter the classroom and they're, you know, this is how we're going to do it. This is how, you know, I expect you to perform without building that rapport first, particularly for for your students from other cultures, then you're really just shooting yourself in the foot at the end of the day because you're not going to get anywhere with the child. Yeah. They're not ready to learn until they know that you're actually invested in them, that you're interested in who they are and being a part of that their experience. That context is also important when we're working with interpreters and translators too. A lot of times individuals will just translate the words and expect someone to understand as if these words mean the same thing because they're spoken in this other language, but maybe the individual, particularly for immigrant communities, maybe they don't have the knowledge around specific contexts, interactions, systems, you know, institutions, all of that. If they don't have that knowledge to back up the language that's coming forward, then they're not able to access it in the same way just because you change the words to another yeah. language. I think in the school system, system and I know that this is wishful thinking but there needs to be a lot of training on working with interpreters yes the person when you're using an interpreter you should never be talking to the interpreter you should never be making eye contact with the interpreter you need to be saying it to the, to the client mm -hmm. also forcing children or other individuals okay. who are not trained to do that to interpret is problematic as well it's also um, against the law exactly I filed an Office of Civil Rights complaint on behalf of a student. When we filed that, there was no anywhere about what an interpreter's qualifications were or minimum qualifications, right? There was nothing. This was in 2013. There was nothing. So after that, there's a toolkit now that says that the interpreter should be qualified or trained. So 
at least now there's like some kind of guide. I actually left a position not too many years ago because the lack of professionalism around that in particular. We had a parent in and the family spoke of Vietnamese and they refused to bring in an interpreter. And they requested that this mother call her sister and have the phone on speaker and have the sister with a bad connection interpret this meeting. You know, like, this is against the law. I don't want to be involved in this. I don't want to be a part of this because, you know, you're not taking me down with whatever you think you're doing. <laughs> yeah. So that that brings me back to what I was saying that organizations in general, you know, they will say, yes, we provide interpreters, but you have to request it within five days, but it doesn't say it anywhere. But then you go to the office and then you say, I need an interpreter. And they're like, no, you were supposed to request it within five days. You also don't know where you're supposed to request this interpreter. So it's almost like, you know, having it. you're setting it up for failure. You're setting people up for failure. And they're also not informing people. That's one of my causes. I go out there and I I inform people about their right to an interpreter, but I print out what the law says and I give it to them and then I, I give it to them in Spanish and I give it to them in English and I said, you can go and take this to the school and you can show them. The thing is, is, is I know now what I need to do to file Office of Civil Rights Complaints. So in order to do that, though, I have to inform them. So I cannot just go out there and say they didn't do that. Once you have lived it and you know what yeah, it's I'm like. I'm going to say the same thing. I think a lot of English speakers in particular place the onus on the other party. So it's if you aren't giving me the type of English or the language that I'm comfortable with, then I've stopped doing the work if I am a person who's kind of close-minded about this idea of linguistic diversity. And we have to really consider that communication happens in two directions. It's not just the person who's speaking. It's the person who has to be actively listening also and has to be focused and able to demonstrate that patience and, and able to work to meet the other person halfway. And I see that in education educational spaces. I see that across, you know, organizations. Sometimes at levels that you would hope that's not the case, but even people seeking their rights in courts or things like that are faced with those challenges and we really need to do better. There's a lot of teachers and school staff that truly care, but their hands are tied. And if they get fired, they're going to get blacklisted. And I have known people that have been fired and blacklisted to the point where if they get hired someplace else, they'll call that location and have them dismissed. So I think a lot of people don't realize that teachers are being put against parents and parents are getting put against teachers so that we lose track of that people are pumped up are the ones that we're yes. so busy. Like, oh, this teacher, this teacher, the teacher, their hands are tied, right? Or the service provider. And that's all the parents see. And they don't see the one other, controlling it. Yeah. The other thing, when there's somebody that doesn't speak English, happens a lot. I hope it doesn't happen everywhere, but it happens a lot in Baltimore City. Liaisons that speak Spanish have a tendency to forget that they are liaison. So they don't always bring the concerns to the principal. They are the ones that decide, oh, no, 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 this and this and this. And then the parents are like fuming. They're like, oh, the school's not listening. But then the principal might not have any idea what's happening because the information was never brought to their attention. I see that a lot. When you speak another language and they have an interpreter, a lot of it can be lost in translation. So what are some changes that you've helped put in place in support of your community? I've done a lot of things behind the scenes. I sound the alarm a lot where I'm like, okay, do you have this? And not only in Spanish, do you have this in other languages? I try to make 
people remember, you know, sometimes we're in meetings and we're talking about language access and stuff. And then they tell me, well, we're hiring somebody that's bilingual. I'm like, no, okay, bilingual is not enough. What is in place for other languages? I think I'm a voice to remember that it's not just Spanish speaking. Again, in Baltimore and Maryland, I think it's a big Hispanic community, but there's also lots of other communities. The only difference is they are not as vocal. The other thing is I try to do the education about the information in, in trainings to parents about special education in Spanish. So I'm not the first one that they had this bilingual in Disability Rights Maryland. They had somebody else before. So it's not that I'm, you know, like we're the ones that serve Spanish population, but being able to provide that information in Spanish is such a life changer to parents because some parents are like, I don't know what they have. They have an IEP, but they don't even know. They just go to the meetings. Nobody ever explains them anything. They give them stuff to sign in, in English. They don't even know what they sign. So sometimes they're like, oh, you know, so just even understanding special education and what their rights are, I think are, uh, are big. But one thing that I'm really proud of is my Office of Civil Rights complaint that I filed on behalf of the student because that Office of Civil Rights complaint, uh, we came to a resolution with Baltimore City that they would make sure that they, they did the uh, surveys when people came in to understood, understand if they spoke another language. And then also in the IEPs in Baltimore City, they will give you the draft in Spanish. I mean, it's been like little victories, but, you know, we have that resolution and it makes you know, a big and, difference. Yeah. And then if they don't, people. they don't keep up with it, or if I see that they're not really keeping up with it, I can file another complaint. So I, I'm very proud of it. And that's awesome. I'm thankful that you did that as well, because having access to the information is the bare minimum, right? Like yes. Yes. I get the information in a language you understand is the bare minimum. Yeah. So the, now they give you your report cards and all the important communications. They give it to you in your language. So uh, again, it's a little tiny drop in the bucket, but it, it's, oh, it, but it's a huge, that's a huge step for what, what's needed. So yeah. If we haven't included them at the level of just access to the information, then we've completely excluded. Yeah. How can individuals, communities, and organizations better serve linguistically diverse or culturally diverse populations? Once again, I go back to taking the time to talk to your community and listening to what it is they need. Because I can tell you what works here. Baltimore City is so different from each corner. And even if you go through the Southwest, North and East, they are so different inside their neighborhoods. So... I think that before you bring any kind of resource or if you want to create something, you need to go and listen to what they have to say and what they need. I have never liked to do what I think is good for me because everybody's so different. My friend says nothing for us without us. Don't yeah. don't plan anything without asking. Yeah. And it disenfranchises them when you tell someone what they need and rather than hearing their community. Yeah. Allowing them the autonomy to be able to tell you all of these communities can speak for themselves. All of the individuals in these communities can speak for themselves. And if you're in a space where you're welcoming that information, then you're more impactful in the work that you're doing. And you will get buy-in from them. Then they will want to participate. Yeah. Making sure that everyone is served in the area that they need to be served. So that makes sense. So do you have any advice or final thoughts for the audience regarding education, service delivery, or any of what we've talked about, advocacy for um, culturally and linguistically diverse populations? Don't dismiss anybody just because they don't speak English. And also don't make assumptions. Don't assume that somebody is not capable of learning just because they're not one, if they have a disability or if they don't speak English. But then there's the opposite of that, where a lot of students 
are still qualifying in ESOL, right? Like after they're in seventh grade, they have been getting ESOL services since kindergarten. And they're like, oh, it's because they don't speak English. It's because they don't speak English. Yeah. I think that we also have to remember, okay, wait a minute. He's not passing that test. Why? Is it because he doesn't speak English or he has a learning disability? So we should not paint everybody with the same brush and assume that. And I think we need to have some safety nets in place because otherwise we're missing wonderful opportunities. Some children, even if they have a disability, if they just get a little bit ex extra support, they will get there. But if we just assume that, oh, it's because they don't speak English, then they will be too far behind later on to be able to benefit from any kind of help. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been such a great opportunity to get to know you, to just exchange ideas and information with you. And I hope that we can kind of continue our conversation. I'm just very much enamored with the work that you're doing. Thank you for inviting me. It was wonderful. Thank you for tuning in to The Culture We Speak. We challenge you to revisit your organization's policies and practices that shape the way you connect with culturally and linguistically diverse communities. For additional resources to that end, join our Facebook group. Special thanks to guest Susana Barrios and to our sponsor, React Initiative, Inc.